Reading, writing, and math and critical thinking are absolutely fundamental, but that's not the measure of character. That's not the measure of decision making. I mean, you can't measure on a test what, what really matters. So yes, do we care about how many skills you earned in Khan Academy? Absolutely, but that's just a starting place. Welcome to Our American Experiment, a podcast that engages leading thinkers and doers, creatively working to strengthen the United States of America, the longest running experiment to defend individual liberty and promote human flourishing the world has ever seen. I'm Evan Baer. On today's show, how a husband and wife duo built a global network of one-room schoolhouses for the 21st century. Jeff Sandifer's lessons learned from experiments in education on Our American Experiment. My name is Jeff Sandifer, and I am the lead guide at the Acton Academy Middle School in Launchpad, our name for high school, and I also teach at the Acton School of Business. Well, Jeff, really appreciate you spending some time with us today. We're going to dive into this amazing venture you've built in Acton, and super excited to talk about that. Before we get into some of the story around that venture, uh, you have such a unique history of being involved in building many successful for-profit companies and um, ideological causes and nonprofits and schools. I'm curious to just get a little context for how you began to shape such an interesting worldview. As you think back about um, particular books that you've read or ideas you came across or philosophers or mentors, uh, what are some elements of that that stand out that shape how you see the world? Well, first, I I think having been born and raised in West Texas, my my worldview is shaped by um, hard work and the the hot sun. (laughs) So my, my father made sure that I worked in the oil field at an early age and, uh, you know, knew what it meant to go out and do a hard day's work. And that convinced me that while I think that's very honorable, I wanted to spend most of my time in air conditioning <laughs> and that actually um, you know, learning some other skill besides uh, the working end of a paintbrush or a wrench. <laughs> Again, honorable professions. Uh, in fact, the, the, the more time I spent around academia, the more I appreciated the working end of a, of a wrench and a, <laughs> and a paintbrush. But... Um, you know, that's really where I come from. I mean, it's from West Texas and from being in the oil fields and, and really working with my hands. Uh, from after that, uh, University of Texas, I was blessed to go there as a petroleum engineer and then on to Harvard Business School and then on to start businesses. Um, like many people, I, um, you know, wanting to be work hard and to be free, um, I'll never forget the first time I, I got a paycheck when I think I was 15 and I'd worked 60 hours, and I went to see heaven. I wanted to say, well, you know, I knew how much money I was going to get. And then I looked at my check, and there was something wrong with it. And I went to see the people and said, well, where's the rest of my money? And they said, well, it went to taxes. And that was kind of my introdu- introduction to um, to uh, go the government taking something away from my paycheck. And and what do you remember? What was that? What kind of work were you doing? At oh, I was, I was in the oil field. Uh, we were uh, clearing leases, so very, very hard manual labor, breaking down pipelines. And I'll never forget, it was making $2.35 an hour, uh, which was slightly above minimum wage at the time. And I just remember going for my check and just being stunned that a third of it was missing. Hmm. Um, but that, so I came from that. Um, I remember reading Atlas Shrugged at, an, at a young age. Uh, and even though I was raised a Southern Baptist, um, in, in, uh, which is a, is a pretty uh, fundamentalist religion, I'm, I'm I'm now a very poor practicing Christian and more of the um, of, of more of a seeker church now, mm. but but coming from that to read Atlas Shrugged and get that sense of 
uh, that many do in their teens of get kind of woken up by that. And what was it? Atlas Rugged is a, a wonderful work. I think it's also a thousand pages. It's many intense libertarians' first introduction to, to the world. How did you come across it? I don't remember, but I, I do remember why it, it, it impacted me um, when I was working hard. But also, I, I was one of those people who, I had a delightful father. He died a couple of years ago, but like many young men, you know, I wanted to rebel against my father. Mm. I wanted to do something different. And I think it was that it was that feeling as a teenager, and then the Atlas shrugged, you can go do something to change the world. I think that's probably what ignited mm. it. Mm. But anyway, after Atlas shrugged and, and, and that, I was always interested in philosophy and how the world worked. And um, after business school, I had the great fortune to spend quite a bit of time with William F. Buckley. Uh, I went on the National Review Board. I was on the National Review Institute Board and traveled at times with him. Now, we were not friends. I mean, he was my hero, and I got to hang around him. So through Mr. Buckley, I got to spend time with Father Sirico at the Acton Institute, which I should say up front has nothing to do with the Acton School of Business or Acton Academy. We just all like mm. Lord Acton. Mm. Um, but with Father Sirico, with uh, Pete DuPont, uh, with a number of people that were kind of in the libertarian side mm. of, of uh, the conservative movement. Sure, sure. On William Buckley's passing, I was a graduate student at Yale, and they did something very honorable, which was they did this a tribute in the Yale Daily News of all these wonderful stories about uh, Buckley. And you could imagine from that context, it easily could have been, you know, all these horrible things that he's done. It was really honorable. And there was this, there was this event for the students to get together and remember William F. Buckley. And uh, there's about 20 students there. And, and we went around and almost every student at the table, we were answering the question, why were you there? And almost every student at the table said, they, re they recounted some story of getting to meet William F. Buckley or getting to have lunch at his house. And he was such a, he and Pat were such consummate hosts. Um, I got one time to go there for a brunch at the place in Connecticut. And Pat's there with a cigarette on the long thing out of a movie with little dogs, <laughs> per Pomeranians or something. And it was just this amazing experience. And I remember particularly seeing his studio where he, he wrote books. It was this kind of giant circular desk where he was painting and he was like composing music. And he was such a, an incredible person. Any favorite memories of, of your, your times getting to meet him? Well, I, I share the kind of feelings you share. I remember uh, when Mr. Buckley died, if you go back and look at the obituaries, and these are people like George Will or people who went on to Bill McGurn, that went on to, or John O'Sullivan, that went on to do something amazing in their lives. But they all started with, when I was 18 years old and no one knew me, and Bill Buckley picked me up at the airport. So he always had this kindness um, t towards uh, people with no power in a mm. way. And since I was always the least powerful person in the room where I, whenever I was with him, um, he would always gravitate towards me. And, and, and he would, you know, if there had been a less powerful person in the room, he would have gravitated towards him. He would seat me at his right hand. He would, so interesting a man in his position was always looking to serve the person with the least power in the room and to spend time with him and be interested in him. And I think that made many of us love him even more. It was that personal kindness. And, you know, in a time when today there's lots of division and for all sorts of good and bad reasons, um, with very rare exceptions, Buckley, it wasn't personal. You know, he could like people on all sides of the divide. He would argue with them, but but it wasn't mean-spirited. It was he, he was always funny and witty and, and just very gracious and kind. So so I um, one of my favorite memories was we were flying, um, I believe, to Taiwan or South Korea together and with a group. And I just sold my business. And I was, at this point, about 28 and made a lot of money. 
And um, everyone was congratulating me on that. And Mr. Buckley came and he sat down next to me and he said, well, I heard you sold your business. And I said, yes. And I expected him to say congratulations. And he looked at me and he said, that must have been really hard. Because hmm. he couldn't have imagined selling National mm. Review, right? I mean, that mm. couldn't even. And so the thought that I, and I thought, oh, my gosh, he's so right. This was my baby. And I loved all the people there. And it was such a fun time. And now it's over. And so. Even now, it kind of brings a tear to my eye because it was such a kind-hearted, empathetic thing for him to, you know, instead of celebrating it, to mourn it in a way. And it just said a lot about him. Mm-hmm. But he was, he was, um, it was, it was a great joy to spend time with him. I got to spend a little time with Lady Thatcher too, and um, you know, in a different ways, she was certainly a force of nature. So those mm-hmm. were, those were, um, those are incredible opportunities, and mm-hmm. I'll never, never forget them. I do hear a lot of people today um, lament or hope for a modern version of firing line. And I know that um, as we sort of get into some of your work around education, you've been in and around a lot of really interesting and sometimes heated um, debates on different sides of, of public policy questions in around education and others. What is your own assessment of kind of where we are as a society today around, you know, you have the spirit of Buckley who can be across from the leftists of the left and have a, a civil, interesting, healthy conversation. Um, do you share the kind of dour assessment that many do that we are in a very difficult place culturally to have conversations with those we disagree with? You know, I, I'm not even qualified to comment on that. Um, I, I spend so little time paying attention to the daily news anymore. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how many Americans don't, but I, I'm neither going to watch Fox nor CNN, and and I understand they both each serve an audience, but I'm just not interested in that kind of fight. Mm. Um, so, I, but I'm not qualified. It, you know, the culture is always uh, slouching towards uh, Gamora, as I think um, uh, uh, Bork, Bork, Bork said. Yeah. yeah, Bork's title. I mean, there's there's always that sense of the world's going to hell, <laughs> and yet America always gets stronger and better. So it's you know it's never been a good idea to bet against America. Uh, all the, are there cultural problems? I, I, absolutely. Am I qualified to comment on them? Absolutely not. Well, a topic you certainly are uh, able and qualified to talk on is is education. I want to turn there now. I was watching some of the speeches and, and reading some of the um, your pieces on education. And in a TED Talk, uh, you made a really interesting point where I want to start this conversation around education. And it is on um, the unique history of education in the United States. And much of the form that we understand it today was really shaped by the Industrial Revolution. And I'd love for you to just explain briefly what that means, kind of how is it designed. But I also want you to assess, were they successful in designing it for their intended outcome? Sure. Well, that's a big question. And I'll start by saying I'm not a scholar in this area. I've read a lot about it. So you're going to get one man's opinion of, of what that time period looked like. And I've read dozens of books, but I'm, I'm, there's, there's going to be an expert in your audience that's going to correct every other thing I say, and they should. So let me start with that. The, the way I've pieced together what happened, you know, before the American Revolution, during the American Revolution, really schooling was un- disorganized and unorganized. You had one-room schoolhouses, uh, you learned reading, writing, and math, and uh, at a fairly early age, you went to apprenticeships. Now, interestingly, at least in some places, at an earlier age than the apprenticeships, you were also seconded to the family down the street. Evan Bear would go to Jeff Sandifer's house, Jeff Sandifer would go to Evan's house, and I think that was because it was easier to teach character to someone else's children, because they wouldn't listen to you as, your, as a parent. 
but but they had this whole series of ways that the community would help um, would, would help instill character that didn't involve doing it in your own home. Mm, and there are actually contracts to do that. So so think about what a um, simplistic uh, system that is. And yet you built the strongest, richest, fairest country on the face of the earth before institutionalized schooling really mm. took off, which wasn't until the, the um, you know, close to the 20th century. I mean, you had these civil war times, you started to have kind of a centralizing effect in school systems. So something was working back then. Uh, of course, around the time of the Industrial Revolution, the late Industrial Revolution, uh, they, people started moving into the cities. And um, as I read it and understand it, uh, men like Rockefeller um, and, and the robber barons, as they were called, who of course did a lot of good in the world too, but they, they felt like they needed something to bring culture to the masses who were coming in their factories. They wanted to kind of socialize them. And I think the intent there was actually, it was certainly to help their businesses, but it was also an idea that we're going to have some social order. Uh, whether you and I would have agreed with that or not, that I don't think it was an evil intent. But what you got out of that was a very standardized system to prepare factory workers. And in fact, to prepare them to be docile. Once you understand that, and you look at a modern school, and you look at rows of industrial lockers, and you hear bells ringing every 45 minutes to snap your attention back, and you see people being lectured to in rows. You know, what we think of as the early industrial schools, which still there's lots in our modern schools of that, it begins to make sense. That's what they were designed for. They were designed to create docile factory workers. And you made a point about, it really stuck out to me, about uh, the bell ringing. And I think your line was that, you know, sort of right at any moment of, of deep focus or thought, there's kind of a bell that rings that when I, when I step back from it, I was thinking like, where do bells ring? It's like bells ring in prisons to like indicate that it's time for lunch. Yeah. No, I, I think so. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an institutionalized place. Now, I want to I be careful here because when we'll talk later about Acton Academy, um, we have a new model to serve people. I think we need lots of new models. None of this is to knock hardworking teachers or people who are trying to change public schools or charter schools. I mean, we need lots of experiments. So, so there are lots of good people out there trying to create something new. Sure. But I think we all agree that an institution that hasn't changed a great deal in over 100 years, when you've seen all the changes in the outside world, it is time to at least begin to ask more questions, to experiment with new models. Lots of people are doing that. We're doing that. But it helps to understand the roots of this. We're really uh, well-intended. But, you know, to create a more docile workforce today in the 21st century... You need people who can think, who can move, who can be adaptive. Um, it's just a different world. So, so if it was the Industrial Revolution that 100 plus years ago was shaping the design of schools, uh, what revolution or economy are you interested in and caring about today, which is the sort of thing for which we are designing today's school? At Acton Academy, you know, we're not trying to change other schools. We're not trying to redesign schools. We're not trying to change the world. We merely started out on a series of experiments for our own children. And we started with seven young people um, and a blank sheet of paper in a small little blue house in Austin, Texas, nine years ago. There was no grand plan. There is no grand plan. Uh, it, was, it was two parents uh, trying to do something new and uh, experimenting. So, so there's no, you know, and all of our efforts are simply to serve our own children 
and and starting over with something. Say, so what would we design if we could do it again? Laura and I, Laura and I, my wife, were both, um, and I should say quickly, I work for her. So she's, <laughs> she, and I seriously do. Acton Academy is really her venture, and I work for it, and I work for her. But Laura was a product of public schools. I'm a product of public schools. Right. We both went to traditional universities. We both got graduate degrees. Hers is in education. Mine's in business. Mm. Um, you know, she went to Vanderbilt. She went to a fine university. So we weren't starting this out saying, gosh, school doesn't work. We need to fix it. We said it doesn't work for our, our kids hmm. for some very recognizable reasons. It doesn't work, and we don't think it's going to work in an age of Google. Memorizing, regurgitating facts on a standardized test isn't going to work in an age of Google and Apple and, and the kind of opportunities we see today. I love learning about the, uh, the entrepreneurial moment where someone kind of decides to take the, uh, the leap off the cliff. Uh, you'd started a bunch of sort of more traditional ventures, businesses of various types before that. Yeah. Uh, take us to you and Laura, was it, were you sitting over dinner? Was there a moment where you said, you know what, we're, we're going to do this thing? Well, an important, I'll, I'll tell you this, the origin story for the academy and kind of an important moment before that or, or a precursor. I've been teaching as a pure Socratic teacher uh, since the late 1980s. So after I got out of Harvard Business School, which is, the, is kind of the, one of the home uh, bases of the case method or the Socratic method, I, uh, I became a graduate level teacher. And so I'd spent a lot of time as a Socratic, uh, as a Socratic teacher. And as such, I really liked what happened in Montessori schools. And as you probably know, those are schools where process is more important than standardized testing. It's about the questions. I think Maria Montessori was truly a genius. So our two young boys went to a Montessori school. And it was time, um, it was becoming, getting close to elementary school age when they were young. And we were about to move them to a more traditional school. And our daughter uh, at, at that time was going to kind of a very expensive private um, middle school. So I went to see the very best teacher in her school. And I asked him, I said, you know, when should I move the boys? And he snapped immediately and he said, well, as soon as possible. And so I was kind of taken aback. He was a little abrupt. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, once they've had that kind of freedom, they won't like sitting chained at a desk and having someone talk at them all day. And again, mm -hmm. before I could even think, I kind of reacted and said, well, I don't blame them. And this tall man, um, wonderful teacher, he was quiet for a long time, and I thought I'd probably offended him, so I blurted that out. And finally he spoke, he shook his head, and he had tears in his eyes, and he said very softly and very quietly, I don't either. And I had this image of Charlie and Sam chained to a desk, and I saw his reaction, and I went home that day and I told Laura, we're done. Mm. Those boys are not going to, uh, to a traditional school. We can start a school. We can homeschool. Um, but we're not, we're not putting them there. And so that was really the start of Acton Academy. And um, it, was, it was two parents who wanted something different. Well, there's a lot about Acton that I want to explore with you. But uh, just for listeners, just tell us, what is Acton Academy? Tell us about it. Sure. So, so our approach, it's... It's best to think of it as a throwback to the one-room schoolhouse. So you have 36 elementary-aged young people. Um, they're learning from each other. Uh, they're working using, so it's, it's a throwback to the revolution. They're doing apprenticeships at a very early age, as early as 10 or 11. It's a throwback to the old, but it's also the new. So think of it as a one-room schoolhouse for the 21st century. 
They're using adaptive learning, all the best new online programs for where those work. And then they're in these hands-on quests where they might think they're Thomas Edison in Edison's lab creating electricity experiments. So it's, it's a combination of these quests where you feel like you're a hero, uh, where, where you're using um, all the latest technologies, where young people are learning from each other. And then the most important part is the, the mission of Acton Academy, our core belief is that each young person is a genius who deserves to find a calling that will change the world. So we expect that we are in the midst of genius. And I don't mean 180 IQs. If you look up the word in the dictionary, it really means to have a unique talent. We believe any person that comes in, they're going to be equipped to do something. And our job is to help them find a calling that will change the world. So that's the essence of Acton Academy. I felt this a little bit out of um, anniversary, fifth year reunion, coming back to Princeton. I was so amazingly lucky to, to get to go for undergrad. The language around changing the world was pretty common. You will change the world until you write these essays and you think about it. And for many of us, I think, I almost wonder if it kind of did people a disservice because five years out, you've just finished law school or you're slogging out an investment bank, or even if you are in something like journalism, you're kind of, you know, covering the local crime beat for Philly. Sure. And so I don't want to say that we should give them very low expectations about their impact on the world, but how do you wrestle with that? Is it fair to kids to say you are a genius and you will change the world? No, it's a, it's a great point. And, and I say the next thing we say, and we're always careful to say is, that doesn't mean you're going to be prime minister. Mm. That doesn't mean you're going to be the CEO of a company. It doesn't mean you're going to be Mother Teresa. You can change the world by running a small dry cleaners you know, in, in um, a less affluent part of town mm. with five employees and have a thousand people show up for your funeral. Mm. So changing the world is about one person at a time, living, using your gifts to serve others, uh, doing it with great joy finding a deep burning need in the world that there, where there's a deep burning need in your heart. And then, as you point out, lots of hard work. I mean, it, it, uh, the word apprentice, you know, means apprentice. And so, yeah. so you start out scrubbing floors. You started doing whatever you have to do to find a gift and talent and hone it. So I do think it's, I think it is somewhat of a disservice at times to give lofty speeches without the understanding of the very gritty hard work it takes to actually execute on a vision. This uh, moment when you are interviewing the best teacher, um, that was 10 years ago, 12 yeah. years ago? I, I always lose. I'm getting so old, I lose count, track of time, but I think it was nine years ago. Okay. And it sounds like uh, this began not as a plan to change and create new schools. It kind of began pretty organic, pretty focused on you and these other families. Walk us through kind of... Uh, it sounds like you were, you were getting some positive feedback. It was kind of working. Did you guys have a moment where it sort of went from experiment to, wow, I, th I think this is working? Well, no, no, actually, we didn't have that moment. Um, we haven't had that moment yet. And, and I honestly think we probably understand about 15% of this new model. So I think we are, are, are still in a phase where we're learning a lot. What happened... Um, I, I never thought about this. I'm obviously not very bright because we, you know, our elementary studio filled up. We got to, I said it was 36 in one room. We had a very small house. We could only fit about 28. And we suddenly realized that some of the older elementary students were about to become middle schoolers. And um, so we moved to a slightly larger place where we could have a middle school. And through a long story I won't bore you with, I ended up becoming the middle school guide, our word for teacher, because at Acton Academy, you, can, you can't didactically teach, you can only ask questions. 
There can be lots of experts, but it can't be the person in the room is not the expert. So we started middle school. And about that time, um, one of my best friends in Guatemala, a former student who's a very gifted entrepreneur, uh, Juan Bonifaci, um, he said, look, I'd like to have one of these for, for our kids. And I said, one of what? And he said, well, like a place like Acton Academy. So we, you know, sent him some emails and PDFs and a stack of stuff. And that's all we had. What was amazing is six months later, we were learning more from Juan than he was from us. And about that time, we had a parent, um, uh, she and her husband, uh, he got a great job offer out in California. And she said, we're not moving unless I can have an Acton Academy. So she came to us, asked the same question. We gave her the same motley collection of kind of stuff that we had. And six months later, we were learning more from her than she was from us. And we said at some point, gosh, maybe if we could just imagine that there were 10 of these and we could all learn from each other and share ideas how quickly our model would get better and how quickly we could serve our children and the people we serve. Any particularly particular memories of uh, points or experiences that either of them had that led you to do something different with your model? Oh, I think one, one of my favorites, there were lots, but one of my favorites from Guatemala City, uh, uh, you, you have to have an idea with these quests, another thing about how the school works, they'll, we'll, we'll go in six-week sessions, so we'll work very hard for six weeks, much like a software sprint, and then you have to ship at the end of the six weeks. Well, in the software business, you, you ship a completed program. In Acton Academy, you have a public exhibition. So you're actually out in public doing something for real customers and real people. And it's often scary. And remember, these are often elementary and middle school age uh, young people. And so uh, one of the things I love that Juan did is they walked in one day and they drew on the carpet in masking tape a 10-inch square. And they told their young people, in six weeks you'll be standing in this square and you will stand in the square for a minimum of eight minutes and a maximum of 10 minutes. You will be in, dressed as one of your heroes, giving a speech that should change the world. So let's say your hero is Winston Churchill. You would dress up as Winston. Now, here's the key. You had to write a speech, an original speech, in Churchill's voice. And then you had to imagine where you would give that speech in, in London, and by the way, there's a whole other part of the quest where you planned a trip to London and how you learned how to plan trips. But, but the beauty of Wanza, and all they had to keep saying to the young people was, you will be in this square. There will be 100 people in the room watching you. And you will be giving a speech in six weeks. And for eight minutes, if your speech is two minutes long, you're going to stand in the square for eight minutes. Well, the speeches that came out of that, and we repeated that experiment, the speeches these young people made, <laughs> were astonishing. I mean, you thought you heard George Patton. You thought you were there for Amelia Earhart. You thought you were there for Thomas Edison. And so what we learned was, if you give young people a really difficult challenge that they know they're gonna need in the real world, and something as simple for gamification is, you will be standing in this square with a certain amount of time. It's incredible what they can deliver. So that was just one of the early ahas that getting the gameplay and the gamification and the role plays and you know, it didn't have to be complicated. It had to matter to the young people and, and connect them with their heroes and their hero's journey. I'm curious now as you think about having you know, dozens and, and hopefully hundreds of these schools around the country and the world, I think a lot of franchises, or I don't know if you'd use that term, but uh, wrestle with sort of um, what are non-negotiables, 
and what are things that we allow for innovation in either to ship back to headquarters or to contextualize to that particular environment where an innovation is needed. Have you kind of figured enough of the model out to say these are the core things and then beyond that we allow experimentation? Yeah, we have. In fact, we, we haven't changed those since we first thought we would have these 10. And we really said we want, everyone needs to make the same promises we do, following the hero's journey, being Socratic, experiential learning. There's a handful of promises. And then the thing we do at Acted Academy that's maybe the most unusual thing we do in terms of learning. And by the way, I don't think we're in the education business. I think we're in the learning business. And I think those are, we can go into that later. I think those are two entirely different things. But, but in the learning business, um, w one of the most important things we do that's different is we ask our customers how they're doing. Every week we send out a survey. It's very equivalent to a net promoter score that would sure. ask like Apple, uh, would, you recommend, would you recommend to your friends that they buy the newest Mac? Right. We ask every week that kind of question. Would you recommend to your friends they go to an Acton Academy? We ask the young people and we ask the parents and all the results are public. Hmm. Anyone anywhere that wants to log in and look at our results can see them. And so our standard to answer your question is, are you making the same promises and are you delivering and are the families feeling fulfilled and satisfied? If they are, you can keep the Acton name. If not, you started a wonderful school, but it's not an Acton anymore. Hmm. And so we're really relying on parents and young people to, um, to be quality control. And we're seeing now, um, we have 91 Acton affiliates around the world in 28 states and Canadian provinces in 20 countries. And we're seeing the same pattern of learning in each of these, the same kinds of challenge, challenges. Most of them, by the way, are human nature, which means we're not gonna solve them. We're just gonna find new ways to have people learn and grow. And we're seeing you know, this, this keep repeating. But our quality control in every case is we're picking entrepreneurial parents who know how to run a business, who care greatly about learning, and, and they have to put their children in the school. They have literal skin in the game. They have to have a camera in their studio so we can see them and they can see us. And that's, by the way, so we can, we're not, no one's doing surveillance. It's all about observing and learning. And they have to issue these satisfaction surveys mm. to customers and mm. share them with each other. Mm. As long as your satisfaction survey is high enough, you keep the active name. Mm. Now, what's come out of that that's been most powerful is, is this idea of positive deviance. It's a fancy technical term for me. What you see that works, do more of it. And so every day on the network from these 91 entrepreneurs, we'll have four or five great ideas. And, the, and we, we copy them. And you, you know, the ones that keep working, you keep doing. And the things that don't work, you report on them and stop doing. And so what it means is all around the world, when you walk in and act an academy, the ones I've been in at least, you know, I've known where I was. It looks very similar. The interesting thing is if you came back six months later, it'd be different. But they're all different six months later. And they tend to copy all of the best ideas from all, so we're, we're adapting very, very quickly thanks to these 91 entrepreneurs all around the world. I wanna explore the concept of this feedback loop that you guys have built. I'm winging this here, but my guess is that most schools and education systems, the way they think about feedback is, uh, at least one of the instruments would be test scores. So they assess how our teachers doing, how are our curricula doing, by test scores, or the test scores going up. You have a different approach, which is you're asking the students, are they 
satisfied? And the parents, are they satisfied? Help me understand why you prefer that feedback loop over scores or a different one. Right. Well, I, I, I prefer that feedback loop because while standardized tests can measure some things, and we actually give one once a year, and our students do very, very well on them, even if they come in in the bottom 10% of the, of the state test scores, they will rapidly improve on the standardized test scores. Reading, writing, and math and critical thinking are absolutely fundamental. If you care enough, you can develop those. We now have enough proof we see it, but that's not the measure of character. That's not the measure of decision-making. I mean, you can't measure on a test what, what really matters. So yes, do we care about how many skills you earned in Khan Academy? Absolutely, it's a marker of the effort and what you put in, but that's just a starting place. So I, I, look, I've got to tell you, I was, um, I was on the Governor's Business Council, which is what it was called then, in Texas at the time when the, um, the, the state standardized tests were put in. And it made perfect sense to me as a business person that we were going to create a factory and the factory was going to create productive citizens and we were going to plan it out just like, I mean, I wasn't one of the people that designed the test, but I was in the room and I didn't say that's a really bad idea. In fact, I thought that's a really great idea. Here's the flaw. Human beings aren't cogs. If you ask anybody that said that, would you want that for your children? They'd say, no, I want them to go out and change the world. I want them to find something they love to do. I want them to be able to think. So whenever I hear someone say, we want to create productive citizens using that kind of approach of standardized testing, I just ask, is that what you want for your children? I've never heard anybody say yes to that. They want that for other people's children. So I just think the whole standardized testing approach is, is, does not recognize the power of the human spirit. Let's explore that for a second. So I would imagine in the world of, let's say, healthcare, we are uh, trying to design a system that would provide for the best heart transplants in the world. So we'd probably get some experts, we'd have all this data, we'd have looked at hundreds of thousands of cases and follow up and we're trying to design how do we do the best thing we can on this human to best optimize the outcome. Right. And that to me feels like, you know, a bunch of HBS graduates could kind of do that and, and calculate it. And that right. is serving at least it's, a, it's an operation, but it is on a human. Take one more pass at why does that approach, why does that not work for education? Well, first off, I'd like to hear you, hear you make the argument it works in medicine. <laughs> because, because as, I mean, when you start off with, we humans are going to design a system and that system will serve everyone who needs to individually, that's not how the world works. Mm. If the world worked like that, the Soviet Union would be the strongest uh, nation on earth, as opposed to being in, as Reagan would say, the ash heap of history. So that approach, what happens, you need people creating competing systems to serve different kinds of people. And then look, we say the Acted Academy model is for the people who want us, wanted to serve them. Uh, I'd say healthcare would be better off if we were the same way. So you can't, humans can't design one system that fits every other person. Sure. So people are just too different. So I think that's where this idea of experts designing a system and five-year plans and look, you got a plan. I mean, I, I've run plenty of businesses. We have plans. And by the way, they change all the time with mm. competition. Sure. So I, I just think that the idea of, you know, one big system to serve everyone and one size fits all doesn't work with human beings very well. One of the big wins, big successes that uh, you guys have created as part of Acton is the Children's Business Fair. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I've gotten the privilege to attend several of them, purchase a number of the products, uh, as did my kids. It was an awesome experience. Tell us about the fair 
and uh, a little bit about how it got started. Well, and, and truly, actually, the fair proceeded Acton Academy because the, the, um, we were talking one day with our boys sitting around the, the, the uh, dinner table, and they were, I think, six and seven at the time, maybe five and six. And Laura was saying that she'd started a lemonade stand and wouldn't that be fun? And, and Charlie said, no, no, I, I want to start a uh, dog biscuit company because I want to sell dog biscuits. And Sam had some other idea. And we said, well, maybe we could invite a handful of young people to come and we can put some booths out. And instead of having a lemonade stand, we'll have five businesses and people will stop. And we, Laura and I debated with all these fancy terms what we would call it. And finally, Charlie got kind of fed up with us. And he goes, look, why don't we just call it what it is, a children's business fair? And so... That name stuck. It became like a farmer's market for children to have a business for a day. And Evan, here's the, here's the uh, embarrassing part. Um, so I'm you know, teaching entrepreneurship. I'm running an MBA program that's ranked in top in the country in entrepreneurship. I'm spending millions of dollars of our own money on entrepreneurship. And the second time it comes up for the children's business for the first time, there were seven or 10 booths. Um, we get a call like in November. Hey, when are you going to have that fair again? We hadn't even thought about it. It was, okay, we'll have it again. The boys want to do it, and they had a different business. Well, this time, there were 20 booths. We decided we'll have it a third time. There were 40 booths. Then there were 80 booths. It took me to the fifth year to realize that the most powerful thing we did didn't have a system. It had a set of incentives, and young people would work for months on their business with no adult help. And it doubled every year with no marketing. We spent no money on it. And it was the most powerful learning experience we'd ever had. So it was seeing the business fair begin to grow on its own and what that young people are capable of far more than you can ever imagine if you will just leave them alone. Hmm. And, and so the business fair, um, at, at about the point it had grown, and now I think the last time you came it had um, 250 young people and about three or 4,000 uh, visitors, we started offering kits to people. Um, around the country. And we had about 80 last year around the country. We'll have 250 this year. Um, my sense is we'll have something near 1,000 in the third year. It's the single most powerful thing we do, and it doesn't take any time or any money. Hmm. I mean, it's just, it, it's a may or very little. It takes a lot of work on the host, and you can't screw it up. You just put eight card tables out, and you get started in your front yard. Right. So, um, so seeing that early is one of the things that informed us about Acton Academy. If young people are capable of that, if we, if we actually begin to inspire and equip them instead of uh, systematize them. Um, but, but the fair has been and continues to be you know, a great joy. It's not connected with the school at all. Um, and the Acton MBA is not connected with Acton Academy. They all tend to share this Acton name, but they're all, they're all separate. But anyway, the business fair is a great joy. And any, anybody out there that wants to go to uh, just Google Children's Business Fair and start one, I give you my personal guarantee if you have children between, um, you know, five years old and 15, you will have a lot of fun. One of my favorite booths and, and little entrepreneurs that I met was this kind of neat, quirky kid who had actually uh, handmade this really complicated board game. Oh, yeah. I remember and that there one. were all these intricate pieces and rules, and uh, my son was with me, and he was asking the kid about how he came up with it and the characters. And so that was one of the things that we bought that day was this set. And so, uh, so yes, there are some traditional cupcakes and lemonade, yeah. um, but for this kid, oh my gosh, the, the thought and intentionality was, was so impressive. We had a young, uh, young lady named Michaela, um, who's now fairly famous, who came to one of our first fairs at age four and a half in a yellow bumblebee costume. And I'll tell you at four and a half, I, you know, 
I still remember her being special. I mean, when you met her, you knew there was something, and she was so committed to saving the bees, and the money was going to go to the bees, and she had her grandmother's uh, lemonade recipe, but it was some secret recipe. Well, Michaela kept coming back year after year at the fair. She was actually building a real business. And so uh, a year or two ago, she went on Shark Tank and got funded. She's now in Whole Foods all across the, the country. And her business raised capital recently at a $12 million valuation. She's 12 and a half years old. So you've got this just incredible young person. And so, yes, you know, like I said, you see some cupcake booths, but you also see booths that really are real businesses and people right. take them on and grow something. And Michaela's one of the best examples of someone who actually, you know, I mean, both her parents work with her now, uh, but, but when you meet Michaela, she's the CEO. I mean, she's a really, I just can't wait to see what she does in 10 years. Uh, there was a great moment on Shark Tank when um, one of the sharks said to her, well, if you were really committed to this business, you'd quit school and do it full time. And she looked back and with no, um, cause she's very delightful, with no meanness in her voice said, well, I've been CEO of, of my business half my life. How many of your CEOs can you say the same thing about? <laughs> and the shark just laughed and that was, but, but so you know, but anyway, you see terrific um, potential in these young people and not just in a few. Mm. Um, in fact, you know, often their, their booths don't work. And that's the greatest lesson about inventory turn or, or having too much upfront cost or getting your pricing wrong. Um, you know, it's, some of the best lessons come from the booths that don't work. I do want to hear about uh, plans for Actin and its growth. It's, it's so exciting. I, I want to pick one more piece up on sort of the, the model and some of the inspiration. I've seen you talk about both Alcoholics Anonymous and the Boy Scouts as right, right. kind of two legs of, of the stool or two key models. Talk a little bit about both of those and how they shape what you guys do. Well, sure. So I'll give you four odd metaphors that you have to put together to get Acton Academy. The first one is um, Superman. The second one is Google. The third is Alcoholics Anonymous. And the fourth is the Boy Scouts. And they really fundamentally answer four important questions that really we believe every learner is asking. The first one is, um, who am I and where am I going? And that's really Superman and the hero's journey. Young people at a very young age understand what the hero's journey is all about. They understand Star Wars. They understand heroes being changed. They understand the Lion King. And so heroes are the core of everything we do and believing that young people are geniuses that are going to change the world. The second one, this Google idea, is Google and gaming. When you can provide gamification and role plays and mimic what happens in the real world and trust people, uh, that you get this acceleration of learning go on uh, that's really at about a 10x pace. We can keep young people engaged at Acton Academy about a third of the time. They move at about a 10x pace when they're engaged, which means that's why they move at two to three times the rate of a normal school. So uh, Superman and the Hero's Journey, Google and Gaming, Alcoholics Anonymous, the third one, that's an odd you know, choice. But what Alcoholics Anonymous has is, the question is, who is going to affirm me and hold me accountable? And so that question, um, Alcoholics Anonymous does a great job of having contracts between individuals and understandings of deep principles. And then the, the fourth uh, one is the Boy Scouts. And the question there is, how do I prove what I can do? And so I've got to know that I have badges like the Boy Scouts. They have to be of excellent quality. They're defined. And then we can take these um, modular badges where you get to pursue things you love and we can translate them back into a traditional school transcript if needed for college. But, but those are really the four things. Um, who am I and where am I going? Superman and the hero's journey. 
What skills do I need and what should I master? The question of Google and gaming. Who will affirm me and hold me accountable? Alcoholics Anonymous. And how do I prove what I can do? The Boy Scouts. Those are the four questions and the four metaphors. You put them together, you have an acting academy. Let's talk a little bit about this idea of contracts. I'm um, super interested in productivity and habits and how technology helps people change their behavior. And as I'm thinking about it, it does seem like we're right now, we're very interested in technology driving behavior change. So we can wear devices that gamify us, you know, exercising more during the week. But when I think about a contract between two people, it feels like something that's really become fairly cheap or fairly disposable today. Um, so a contract between two people who are married, it feels like you can easily exit it. Contract between a, a tenant and a landlord. I mean, you can smoke and have dogs and yeah, you'll pay a fee fine when you leave. Um, we kind of treat possibly contracts as, as pretty cheap, but it sounds like you found a way to have something between two people that's not merely about habit tracking, but it sounds like it's a deeper thing. Well, you, you, you can have an argument, and people do, and they argue for a long time about whether you should have uh, intrinsic, like hero's journey kind of motivations or extrinsic. Should we, should we reward with money or with identity? Uh, you can have an argument about whether you should reward the individual or the squad or the tribe. And you know, we could, if we had a blackboard here, we could draw a pictogram with 100 years of management theory on one nice diagram. Mm. And you could argue all the time at which part's right. Well, at the academy, we don't argue, we do all of them. So contracts are your word and your bond. They serve, like I said, it's, it's really like Tocqueville civil society. That's what it's like. And you think about in the world we live in today, it's a very complex set of contracts we have. And you're right, some of them are short-term. Some of them are supposed to be long-term but get broken. Um, the academy functions the same way. We have these series of contracts. We have extrinsic rewards called Eagle Bucks. There's a, there's a real economy inside the school. You have the hero's journey for identity and the tribe. And so you really have at all levels, just like in a civil society, you have these voluntary organizations and cooperation and individuals making choices within the framework of community, all moving towards a common goal for the community that's built of the individual movements, the individuals. So it's complicated to describe. When you see young people execute it and they build it one step at a time, it functions as invisibly as the world we live in, which is really the same thing. And that's what we're trying to do is create you know, the real world. So when young people go out to change the world, they actually have experienced it. You've certainly read a lot about market theory and um, how capitalism aligns choices and incentives, and you're deeply schooled and thoughtful on all of these things. Has anything, I, I'm sure there's a lot. What have you learned about sort of seeing the invisible hand play out among your students? This kind of taught you about decision-making and choice. Does anything kind of surprise you or challenge how you thought maybe what students might do or might not do? Well, it's always surprising. And, and um, Laura quotes my friend Stephen Tomlinson in saying in her book, Courage to Grow, which describes Acton Academy, she quotes Stephen asking her one time, would you rather be right or would you rather be surprised? And she said, we went into this experiment with Acton Academy wanting to be right for our children. And thank goodness we've been surprised. And so we continue to be surprised at every level of how much children can really do when you trust them, what they're capable of. So we're surprised every day, but you do see repeatable things in the way people make choices. 
Um, you know, we believe that the way you, our, our philosophy of learning is that good choices and analysis lead to the right decisions. The right decisions become habits. Habits forge character and character determines destiny. That's very much the hero's journey. So yeah, you need the short-term actions to be as thoughtful as possible and formed by short-term incentives, but you need to have that hero's journey view of destiny and where you're headed and that your life matters um, informs the long-term role. And, and I'll say, you know, you and I are libertarians of a sort, and we're on this podcast that's libertarian, but Acton Academy, we welcome people that are communist or socialist or atheist or Christians or Buddhist. We have people of all, you know, political and uh, religious and non-religious and apolitical, um, everybody's welcome. And there's no political agenda. You can testify to anything you'd like to testify. And you're, you're encouraged to be judgmental. And what I mean by judgmental is the true meaning of the word, take a stand and tolerant. I'm gonna take a stand and then I wanna know what Evan's gonna have to say about it. Because you may change my mind. You may actually, I may actually learn something and learn and come closer your way. So again, that's what should happen in a civil society. In a free market civil society, we should all be able to make changes. Not just about the economy, it's about the political system, it's about the belief system you're gonna have. Um, all those go hand in hand and it's complicated, but the world's complicated because people are complicated. You ran through some numbers earlier on the business fair, I think 80, 250, 1,000 in a few years from now. Give us a quick sketch of where is Acton Academy now and wh what are you hoping for in the next maybe five years? Well, actually, I've probably already given you a different number because it changes so fast, I can't keep, <laughs> I'm in charge of it and I can't keep control. But we, um, we have 89 as of this morning. Um, we, um, I, I, I think I said 91 because we had 91 two or three days ago and I realized I double counted two of them. But we're at 89 uh, Acton Academies today. We're in 28 states and Canadian provinces and 20 countries. If you ask me that next week, I will not know those numbers. They will have all changed. Mm -hmm. I just happened to have looked at it um, this week. And more importantly, we now have over 8,000 applications from parent entrepreneurs not to go to Acton, but to start an Acton. So we're getting about 100 applications a week. Um, we are not able to um, help everyone yet because we've, this is all unexpected and kind of a shock. So we're gearing up. We think we'll be at 150 learner-driven communities. We don't call them schools because they're really about the learner-driven side of how people form a community. But we expect to have 150 or so by year end. And then we'll see where it goes from there. I mean, we may end up at 150. Um, however many we end up with is, ha is more than we ever thought we would have because <laughs> we, we never even thought we'd have one. And what is the gating factor? Why would you only be at 150 given the 8,000 that want to start them? Yeah. Well, one, we are being very choosy because we're not very good at this yet. We give people a do-it-yourself kit and they belong to this community and this network. And you mentioned headquarters um, earlier. We don't want to be headquarters. We want to be one of the nodes on a network that's learning. So we're trying to take ourselves out of the headquarter position as, as soon as we can. But but the gating factor is we want very good people doing this because we're not very good at helping them yet. Um, we want um, we, we want, they need to see it to believe it. And so there's a constraint of how many people can actually come on campus and see what we're doing and experience it. And you know the growth has surprised us. So we're way behind. We're flying the airplane while we're building the airplane while we're trying to build an airport. And so we're just very constrained in our ability to serve. And so, it, it, you know, it's, gosh, the, if you'd asked me two years ago, we have 150, I would have laughed at you. Um, and again, we're not trying to do 1,000 or 10,000. We're going to do whatever it takes to serve our community 
and to develop more strong entrepreneurs running uh, running these uh, learner-driven communities, and we'll see where it goes. What What is the risk, though, of picking your top 500 out of those 8,000? Sure, you won't be able to spend as much time with them. They may not be as, as well-prepared. What's the risk of having you know, half of those new schools kind of not work? Well, actually not much. And that's the reason we've grown as fast, as quickly as we can. Because if you think about it, if you're going to put your own children in the school and you know how to run a business or lead an organization or run a project, the odds that you're really going to completely fail are zero. The homeschoolers of the world have, have led this revolution. So there are the right kinds of programs and things out there to build your own school. Uh, and Acton Academy is different. I mean, to understand the systems and how they fit together and how kind of you start out simple, but turning over the power and turning the learning upside down to the young people and having adults back away and allow that civil society to occasionally collapse and rebuild itself because it's anti-fragile. It actually becomes stronger the more it breaks. That's a, the culture building is, is not uh, easy to convey. And we're just now getting the tools and the systems to where we can easily hand them to somebody. So, again, it's on us that we haven't, um, we haven't created a kit that's robust enough that we're ready to turn it completely loose. And that's what's constraining growth. Curious how you think about, you're so read and have taught, I'm sure, um, cases on the great franchises of the world. As you think about, you know, a McDonald's or a Starbucks or a Chick-fil-A model, um, Chick-fil-A jumps out because... I think they do 30 plus interviews with an owner operator. They almost never operate one more than one location. It's usually someone who's a leader in their community, really distinctive approach versus a, a McDonald's, for example. Are there, are there, does that track with some of your thinking about acting that at some point you guys would have a, a system for how you recruit these people and you train them and there's culture and you're inspiring them? Well, um, no. And the reason is, is no one wants to be trained. Hmm. And the last thing we want are a bunch of hyper-trained adults that want to interfere in the young people's learning. Now, hear me clearly on this. We think there should be experts and mentors and coaches. And adults can play very important roles in, in young people's lives, particularly parents. We believe the child belongs to the parent. We don't train people like a franchise because, it, so if you're going to think of it as, as a franchise, and technically, by the way, not-for-profits can't even legally be franchises. So we're, that's why I use the word affiliate. But we're really just providing a kit. And it, this would look more like Alcoholics Anonymous in the sense of very simple principles, fairly simple governance, uh, locally uh, run and, and, and the local actins kind of take care of each other. And today with the technology, because owners visit other owners, and more importantly, actin eagles, the young people talk to each other, we have feedback loops where everybody's getting lots of feedback. And so, so we're getting feedback and we're getting quality control Every day you get reports, and people report on us and other owners. So you've got, because of the technology, these incredible feedback loops where you can actually judge quality. Mm. And again, it's the parents and the young people judging it and adapt pretty quickly. And if we don't adapt, we hear from it from our young people who are talking to students in Taipei or Guatemala City or Fort Worth and saying, hey, why can't we do that? And if it's a good idea, we try it. Um, but again, you're not training adults to kind of execute this. These are emergent. These are, these, are, these are coming from the hearts and minds and practices of the young people themselves. So they emerge. They're not built like an engineer would build something. Are there, are there comps possibly from the ecclesial world where you think about a church planting network that sort of yeah. says, like, here's the doctrine, don't stray from this, but everything else, figure it out? A, a, a little bit, but I would actually take you back to early Christianity 
And, and again, I want to keep saying, you know, this is not, we do have Christian affiliate actins. They're called actin and primuses. But the normal actin is kind of welcomes, um, all the actins welcome anybody of any faith, but we're not even Christian focused. But I'm going to use the early Christian church um, as opposed to uh, current church planners, and particularly Willow Creek and the big box churches. Now, I've, I've actually worked with people to do that, and I'm very supportive of it. I mean, I think it's a great idea. But the early church spread person to person, uh, people that had a great faith in this, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And of course, this isn't that faith, but this is the faith that young people can do more than they can imagine, more than we can imagine. And so this is much more like the early church spreading person to person. I'm sure, by the way, they're going to be, you know, what you would think of as doctrinal fights between actins. Terrific. And by the way, if a group wants to spin off and become uh, the Evan Bear schools, that's great with us. And if they don't want to be a part of our network anymore because they morph and become something better or different, that's perfectly all right. So we'll continue to work with the strongest affiliates in the network. We've got our seven promises, and those promises are clear, and we follow them all the time. If someone wants to come up with a better model, we'll either adapt to that model or it'll spin off. And like the early church, in a way, you know, you'll have strength by having all these different arguments without, with all due deference to the Catholic Church, you know, without the structure and hierarchy of the world's first and greatest bureaucracy, which is still around and still doing pretty well, the Catholic Church, we're going to look more like a lot of Protestant um, denominations all squabbling with each other. We'll be a much messier version and, and, you know, again, looking like a civil society. So you're more the Martin Luther than the Paul. Yeah, we're, we're, I'm trying to think of what you would describe. We're, we're not Paul or Martin Luther either one because they seem through divine inspiration to have known what they're doing, and we don't. Uh, at best, we're trying experiments, and so I don't know what you would say we are because the, you know, the, the, religious, the religious analogy gets you to doctrine really quickly. And I don't believe we have much doctrine behind, beyond every child's a genius, and they need to find a calling that will change the world. That's about the only doctrine we have. And, and that belief, I think you can see played out day to day when you go visit these, these communities. For listeners that are excited about you and this mission, let's talk a little bit practically about ways people could be part of the, the journey going forward. Well, first off, if, if starting a school sounds like too much, starting these learning German communities sounds like too much, and it should because it's hard. Uh, go start a children's business fair. If you care about young people, if you have young people in your life, just Google Acton Children's Business Fair. It'll pop up. And it's a very simple process. And you get a kit. We even kick in some prize money. It's free. It's just something we offer you know, as a service to the world. And so if you want to do something simple and powerful that you cannot screw up, start a children's business fair. Mm. And my, my advice actually is to start small. They're more fun when you start small and they'll grow over time. Uh, if you're interested in the academy, uh, actinacademy.org, you can go look at what goes on in our academy. And there's also a place, a launch page, where if you want to start auditioning to join this group that wants to audition and launch an actin, uh, you can go there. If you want to hear more about the story because you're not sure, uh, Laura's book, Courage to Grow, is not a how-to manual. It's a story of our family's hero's journey and the struggles and the mistakes we made um, in starting Acton. So it's really a hero's journey story of, of how Acton got started. But if you're interested in the story and more of what kind of forms Acton to see if you want to launch a school or you want to take it into someplace where, where you're learning with young people, Laura's book, Courage to Grow, is a, is a terrific read. And you, you may have covered this, but remind us for parents 
with kids. Um, how do they find out about one in their community and see about having their kids attend? If you want to know if one of these is opening your community, you can go to the Acton uh, website and look, or better yet, just Google Acton Academy in your neighborhood. It'll pop if there's one open. And if there's not, go to the website and launch one. Time is coming to an end. I want to come full circle to uh, Buckley's lament about you selling your business. As you think about, you know, the rest of your life and the future of Acton, uh, do you have a vision for what your role continues to be? Do you, do you want to stay a teacher? Do you want to run the whole thing? Do you want to hand it over to someone else? What are you hoping for personally? Well, I have no, I, we have no idea where it's going to go. So we don't have a vision. We're just going to serve the owners. Um, I love creating learning challenges. Uh, I love being a Socratic teacher. Uh, so I'll find some way to keep doing that. Uh, Laura writes beautifully and um, is kind of the keeper of the faith of what we do. But, but, but I would see us in fairly quick order uh, handing the power in the Acton Academy network off to the, biggest, to the, to the strongest owners and uh, beginning to quietly take less of a role there. Children's Business Fair is a blast. We'll always do that. And the Acton MBA program for anyone who wants to go start a business you know, it's a terrific program. I'll continue to probably teach there as long as they let me. But what we're going to do next, I couldn't have imagined 10 years ago we'd be doing this. So uh, I would be like trying to be like Paul or, or by Martin Luther trying to predict what's going to happen um, in two years, much less than 10 years. So I don't know. We'll just continue to serve. And uh, when, you know, our time on the stage is kind of done, we'll, we'll fade off in the sunset with somebody better behind us. Well, as a, as a last one, I want to end on this. You mentioned Laura, your wife, is, uh, is your boss. Yep. And you also... She, she, would not, she would be angry if she heard me say it that way. She doesn't <laughs> like it when I say that, so hopefully she won't listen. Okay. And you also love feedback. You guys are constantly driven by feedback. What is a, a piece of feedback or advice that she has given you during this adventure that you guys have had together uh, that stuck with you? Um, probably one of the best pieces of feedback is uh, you know, one of the hardest things about opening an acting academy is not the young people, it's the parents. And I would say um, some of us, it's easy to think that if you're in a higher socioeconomic bracket, you're a better parent. I'd be very careful with one with that thought because what I've seen so far, I think it may be a negative correlation. Now, I tend to get kind of then, I believe so much in the young people, a little impatient with parents. And so her advice uh, to me is, remember how patient I had to be with you. So, uh, <laughs> so, um, so her, her best advice is be more patient with mm. parents um, because you, you, you still got a long way to go yourself. And, uh, and that's, that's true. Heartfelt and, uh, and and from experience, nonetheless. Uh, well, Jeff, thanks for taking this time to share this vision. And uh, way beyond that, thank you for just this um, hard, difficult entrepreneurial work that you and Laura and so many others are on that, you know, has already impacted thousands of kids and we know will uh, will touch millions. Well, thank you. It's a, it's a, it is hard and it's also a joy and that's what callings are all about. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time, Jeff. This has been Our American Experiment, a podcast about the longest running experiment to promote human flourishing the world has ever seen.